I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Well, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. My name's Ben Horton. I've got Agnes Frimston down the line. Agnes, how's it going? Hello, how are you, Ben? I'm very well. I'm a bit achy. I've been doing DIY all weekend. Excellent. Have you been building bookcases? Some important home improvements have been made. Yeah, built a new bookcase, built a new desk, hung up loads of art to try and pretend like I've got some culture. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just generally trying to make my flat feel a bit more feel a bit more lived in lovely Aww. so but it was very satisfying you know it's like I, I think it's the same feeling I got as a child playing with lego you know <laughs> like a sort of sense of achievement that's just very satisfying in a way to be honest I think I probably still get that feeling with lego now so Ben what is happening next week at Chatham House Next week, obviously, is a very exciting week because Chatham House officially turns 100 years old. Da, da, da. Oh, my goodness. We don't like a day over 50. No, we've, we've aged well. We've aged well. So the 5th of July is the 100th anniversary of the very first Chatham House meeting, which is exciting stuff. And to mark that, there is a whole week of really, really great, interesting events that have been put together by our colleagues in the events team and elsewhere with some incredibly exciting speakers. We're not going to give you any of the details now, but we're just going to flag this because you may want to visit the Chatham House website after listening to this episode to find out a bit more about what's going to be happening. Almost all of the events, I believe, are open to the public or will be live streamed. So I would definitely recommend having a look because it's going to be worth tuning in. That's really exciting. And we might have some exciting plans for next week too. Who knows if you're lucky, but it's going to be a really, really interesting week talking about the last hundred years. Um, yeah, not much to cover in a week, but I, I mean, I'm sure we'll, we'll do our best. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of covering things and doing our best, who did you speak to this week? I spoke to, in my interview, Mark Gavissa, who is a journalist based in Cape Town, just outside Cape Town in South Africa. And Mark has a new book out, which is called The Pink Line, Journeys Across the World's Queer Frontiers. And it's a really amazingly comprehensive read. It's, it's so interesting. He basically travelled across the world to many different countries to speak to LGBTQ plus people, some of whom are activists and some of whom are just normal people going about their lives, about what it's like to identify in those ways in countries where maybe it's not as accepted as in others. So we had a really interesting conversation about LGBTQ plus rights, the movements to sort of protect those rights and generally how people who identify in those ways engage with politics at the moment. And this was a global discussion, so not, not fixed on one particular area. Very much, yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as you'll hear in the interview, we, we speak about all sorts of different examples. It's fascinating stuff. He's got such an amazingly diverse array of material to draw on in terms of where he went. Really yeah. interesting. It's a big topic, isn't it? <laughs> Sounds really interesting. Though. Absolutely. But who did you speak to, Agnes? So I spoke to Dr. Sam Geel, who is an Associate Fellow in the Energy, Environment and Resources Programme here at Chatham House. He's also the executive director at China Dialogue and associate faculty at the University of Sussex. And he works on climate change, media and civil society in China. 
So we thought we'd have a sort of brief post-COVID update on China, but more from a sort of global standpoint perspective. How has COVID affected China's soft power, like global standing? How's it viewed? And what's it doing on the climate change front? Because I think a lot of the world potentially hoped that a break in production and manufacturing caused by COVID would maybe spur on a rethink of how China is using coal and addressing climate fears. So it was an interesting chat. Yeah, amazing. And and actually, it probably would be interesting to listen to that one as well as the interview we recorded with our colleague Yu Jia at the beginning of the crisis. Just before we locked down, we had a conversation about China and coronavirus. And so it'd be fascinating to see what Sam thinks has changed in yeah. the intervening period. And I can't believe that was only one. <laughs> February, March? I was mad. It feels like a, an age ago. Yeah. Well, should we have a listen? Let's have a listen. So we're back and joining me down the line all the way from Cape Town, South Africa, I have Mark Gavissa. Mark is a writer and a journalist. His journalism on the new global discussion around sexual orientation and gender identity has appeared in The Guardian, Granta and The New York Times. And he's also the author of books, including the prize winning A Legacy of Liberation, Tabo Mbeki and the Future of the South African Dream and Lost and Found in Johannesburg, a memoir. Uh, And his new book is titled The Pink Line, Journeys Across the World's Queer Frontiers, and it's published by Profile Books. It's out now. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. It's very good being with you, Ben. Could you tell us first a bit about how you approached writing The Pink Line? I sort of came at it from two ways, and and those two ways are reflected in, in the way the book actually looks. So the first way that I came at it was is that I noticed that about a decade ago that there was something very big happening in the world and that there was a, a sort of global conversation that had, had not yet happened globally. It had happened, a conversation about sexual orientation and gender identity had been happening in Western Europe and in North America for many years already since the 70s, but suddenly this conversation was global. And I was seeing the effects of this global conversation in terms of the way some societies, particularly in Africa, and I'm African, were suddenly talking about and reacting to homosexuality or gender diversity in a way they never had before. So there was suddenly this idea that African societies were homophobic. And I wanted to understand how it was that these societies where homosexuality hadn't been discussed at all, or where gender diversity was considered just something in the world, where suddenly these had become political issues, why this had happened. So that way of approaching it was to to try and understand the discourse and to try and and understand the way this new conversation was a consequence of very much the vectors of globalization, of the digital revolution and of mass migration specifically, and the way ideas were traveling so quickly around the world and crossing over borders that nations or patriarchs or priests or people wanting to sort of defend quote-unquote traditional values tried to set up. Mm. So that was, that was one way I was approaching it. The other way I was approaching it was as a journalist and as a reporter, was by meeting people who live on what I, what I came to call a pink line, this new human rights frontier. And I, I received a, a wonderful fellowship from Open Society Foundations to travel the world, particularly to places where it seemed like 
where the frontier was particularly sharply drawn. And meeting people there who seemed to embody what it meant to live on the pink line on this new frontier. And so the book has these very deep profiles of 10 different people or, or groups of people from 10 different countries all over the world interleaved into these more analytical, discursive political chapters. Could you unpack a bit more for us this idea of the pink line? How exactly did that function? What did you find when you went to visit it? Well, I mean, I guess the first thing to say is that the pink line is everywhere, even in societies where it seems like, if one describes the pink line the way I do as this new human rights frontier around sexual orientation and gender identity, the pink line, you can see how it runs between Europe and Africa. Because in the same year that Britain, 2013, promulgated its same-sex marriage legislation, Nigeria promulgated a same-sex marriage prohibition act in direct response. So at the same time as some parts of the world were finding ways to extend human rights to this newly identified category of people, other parts of the world, in response, in reaction, for reasons we can discuss, were emphatically finding ways of shutting down space by writing laws that weren't there before, such as the Russian Anti-Gay Propaganda Act, for example. So the, the pink line is definitely a geopolitical line that's drawn between nations. But as anyone who is particularly gender non-conforming or transgender will tell you, the pink line runs through countries as well. So in the United States, you've got marriage equality. And as of a, a few days ago, you have protection from employment discrimination, but there's still a culture wars raging over whether children can transition mm. and whether trans kids can use the bathrooms congruent to their felt gender. In the United Kingdom, there's a huge debate going on, a country that's apparently very liberated, that is very liberated when it comes to human and individual rights. There's a huge debate going on right now about whether transgender people have the right to self-identify. In other words, whether they can say what their gender is without any medical or otherwise intervention or assessment. And it seems like the Boris Johnson government has decided that they can't because of a very strong public opinion about this. So the pink line runs through countries as well. I think the pink line runs particularly in countries where there is discrimination. The pink line can run through families. Pink line can run through a household between the queer kid who is looking at their smartphone and experiencing online liberation and what happens when they look up from their smartphone and have to engage with a family or a community or a church or a country that does not believe they have their right to be who they are. So it's quite a flexible term, which, um, which I apply in different ways through the book. Just on that point you raised at the start of that answer about certain countries developing more conservative or constrictive legislation on this question in recent years, as you see it, are they doing that explicitly in response to liberalisation in other countries? Or is it more that they're recognising within their own countries that these movements are gathering momentum and they want to bring them to I a think it's a, it's a sort of, it's a combination of both. Mm. Certainly, Vladimir Putin in 
the early 2010s, wanted to find a way to define Russian values against a decadent and secular West. Uh, certainly Viktor Orban today wants to make a point about the importance of borders and wants to demonize George Soros and the European Union for demanding that he takes down his borders and accedes to the new global consensus around sexual orientation and gender identity. But you're absolutely right. The second part of it is that as a consequence of this new conversation and specifically as a consequence of the digital revolution, and the fact that that kid I was mentioning before can download an idea about their sexuality or gender identity being something that is deserving of rights and recognition. Yeah. You have a situation where in countries like Russia or Nigeria or Indonesia, people who used to just think of sexual behavior as something you did on the down low are now owning the sexual behavior as an identity. Hmm. They're saying it's not just that I get married heterosexually and have my boyfriend on the side. I want to live with the person I love and I have the right to do that. And this has created a, a certain cultural crisis in these countries for several reasons. Firstly, because by doing so, people who are part of this movement are challenging the patriarchy and challenging the gender norms of their society. If in society a man is above a woman and two women decide they're going to live together as equals in marriage, or two men decide they're going to live together as equals in marriage, what does it do to the gender relations between men and women? So it challenges the gender norms of a society or of a country. But what it also does is it represents a new category of people entering the civic space. And this has been particularly true of a country like Russia which wants to shut down anybody using that civic space to call for political rights. Mm. And the most vocal and verbal of such people in Russia at the time when Putin's United Russia Party was trying to shut down civil society were the LGBT movement. So it, it becomes a target so that the state can show that it's not going to tolerate any kind of social movements, political activism on the street. This was a, very much the, the story in Uganda as well, which is another country where there was a homophobic backlash. Um, it was a way of Museveni's government in Uganda, Yuri Museveni's government saying, we are not going to tolerate any group of people taking to the street and demanding rights. And we're gonna show this by clamping down on a group of people who we know are quite unpopular because of religious ideology anyway. Right. And, and that's how we're going to make our point. I'd like to ask you something about how we define these movements. Obviously, in your opening statement at the top there, you were talking about how you've explored debates around sexual orientation and gender identity as almost distinct areas of debate. But so often we hear the media, but also movements themselves, they're identifying it as LGBTQ plus rights, they're bringing these together under one umbrella to try and make change. I just wondered whether in the course of your of your travels and your research, you've come to a view about whether it still makes sense to talk about these two issues together, given that in some areas, sexual orientation, for instance, there have been maybe more gains in that area than in terms of gender identity. There are some wonderfully nifty ways that the transgender movement 
defines the difference between sex and gender. So there are great comments like, my gender is between my ears. My sex is between my legs. My gender identity is who I go to bed as. My sexual orientation is who I go to bed with. Sex is what I do with my clothes off. Gender expression is what I do with my clothes. So sex and gender are different, and sexual orientation and gender identity are different. But they are inextricably connected. And in fact, in the Supreme Court judgment that Neil Gorsuch has just passed, outlawing discrimination in the workplace on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity, his judgment rests on that. That if you discriminate against somebody because of their gender identity, you're discriminating against them because of sex. Because they used to have the male sex and they now no longer have the male sex. And in many parts of the world, there is really a fusion of the two identities, that there's a kind of a continuum. So people who are gender non-conforming often, but not always, have non-normative sexual orientation too within a society. The, the, the division into LGBTQ+, etc., is a phenomenon of, of Western society where sexual orientation and gender identity have, have separated out. And it came about because there are specific issues that trans people face, obviously, that gay men, cisgender gay men, do not face. And therefore, you need to have a T movement that's separate from an LGB movement. But there are ways that they all come together. And the ways they all come together are not only in the ways I've just discussed, but also in the way that they are all lumped together as other, as non-normative, as perverse, as something against traditional values, as something against heteronormative society that puts them in the same box. And that's in a way that why the LGBT remains in that box. Uh, Now, the expansion of the LGBT out towards the Q and onwards is fascinating and has a lot to do with the way young people in particular and young people in the West in particular have stopped thinking of gender as a binary with male and female and have started thinking of it as a spectrum or a continuum and are finding places along this continuum to put themselves along this continuum or sometimes outside of the continuum, outside of the binary, non-binary being a gender category too. So this proliferation of gender categories that's expanding the alphabet is, is a fascinating, I think, function of the way younger people are thinking about gender in society. And, and another thing that's really interesting to me about that, this is, this is at a bit of a tangent, is the way there's a sort of fascinating global switch going on. So in societies like, in many societies, for example, of West Africa or of Southeast Asia, there's always been a gender spectrum rather than a gender binary. Anybody who knows India or comes from India who's visited there will know of hijras. There are hundreds of thousands of hijras, uh, so-called third gender people who inhabit a place between masculinity and femininity. Similarly, in the Philippines with bakla, and certain gender categories in West Africa too, Gorjigan and Daudu are the um, Senegalese and the Nigerian ones. Now, what's been fascinating is as people in the West start collapsing the gender binary through this proliferation of letters in the alphabet, notions of 
a transgender identity, which is quite binarist. I was assigned male at birth, and now I'm female. I was assigned female at birth, and now I'm male. These notions are sort of proliferating through the digital revolution, through the global human rights movement, so that the identity of transgender is suddenly there for the first time in India or in the Philippines. And this creates a whole lot of possibility because it gives you an identity that has political power and is deserving of political rights. And it also gives you a sort of path through biomedicine to altering your body to be what you might aspire to. And that, that, that really has created possibility. But, it, but in a way, too, it's also closed down space because in these societies, there's an increasing dismissal of the third gender and of people who kind of languish in the unclear space between masculinity and femininity rather than, than making the transgender crossover. And in some societies, and I'm thinking specifically about West Africa, a space that was initially occupied very powerfully by people we might call transgender has disappeared altogether because, and I'm thinking specifically of a group of people in Senegal called Gujigen. And Gujigen means man, woman. And in Senegal, Gujigen, in urban Senegalese society, Gujigen played a very important role as entertainers, as designers. Uh, they were people who were born in male bodies, but lived as women. And what happened in the early 21st century is that the discourse of LGBT rights came to Senegal as it did to so many other places. And it actually came on the back of the AIDS epidemic because the AIDS epidemic is all, there's, there's a maximum in the AIDS epidemic is, is that you can't reach people who are underground. So if you want to reach uh, men who have sex with men, they need to be accorded their rights so that they can learn the messages of safer sex. And as a result, a gay movement sprung up very quickly in Senegal. And the consequences of this was a sort of religious fundamentalist backlash. And suddenly there was a moral panic in Senegal against this new category of people, gay people. And the most visible expression of this new category of people were the Gojigen, even though some of them were not what we would call gay. They actually lived with their biological female wives and just dressed as women. Mm. Nonetheless, they, because they were the most visible manifestation of this new threat, they disappeared. And you will not find Gojigen in Dakar anymore, except on a couple of nights a year, which are sort of carnivalesque nights, where it's allowed to kind of transgress. So these are, these are some, some very complex global switches that are happening as a consequence of this new conversation. Another complicated dynamic within this debate, which I found quite interesting, is this idea of these questions as questions of human rights, which we so often kind of accept these human rights are universal. That's at least how they're framed. But a counter argument against a lot of these movements for, for greater rights for the LGBTQ plus movement is often that these are values that are being projected onto countries whose customs and traditions may reject them and that it's not right to sort of say oh well because we've decided that it's a human right to be able to choose your gender identity that necessarily countries that are more conservative need to accept that i just wondered where you stand on that question how you respond when that counter argument is made one's going to look at where that argument's coming from and if i can stick with senegal so the senegalese president Macky Sall, who's actually quite a liberal guy 
complained to a Western journalist a few years ago that it was unfair for the West to demand these gay rights, these homosexual rights of African countries, because things take time and it's not within our cultural frame as Africans. And, and I find that that comment made frequently by leaders to be a sort of externalization of something that's internal mm. and a denial of the agency of, of Senegalese people themselves who are demanding these rights. It's Senegalese people who are demanding these rights rather than the American government. The American government might be supporting the Senegalese people demanding these rights. So I see it as something, it's a conflict within a society that then gets activated in a certain way when foreign governments get involved, sometimes in a ham-handed and, and heavy-fisted way, as, for example, when David Cameron said that he was going to make foreign aid conditional on societies granting human rights mm. to LGBT people. That was kind of heavy-fisted and ham-handed and created a backlash against queer people in African countries that really made conditions worse for them rather than better. So I think there's got to be a lot of sensitivity about this. But this notion that these demands for rights are being imposed from the outside, I find to be a bit of a canard. That being said, when a new category of people demand rights that have not been demanded before, it can throw a society and a culture into chaos or into crisis. And as a consequence, there can be backlash. Mm. And then the question then arises, is it better to keep quiet and, and not ask for these rights in the first place? And in an, in an era of globalization, that's really difficult. So somebody else I interviewed in my book, a Ukrainian activist, a woman called Lena Shevchenko, said to me that as she, in, as part of the Ukrainian revolutionary movement in the early 2010s, and she started bringing LGBT rights onto the Maidan, in fact, in Kiev. She was counseled by other people to keep them off the Maidan, to keep them off the agenda, because it's only going to draw fire, particularly from pro-Russians who were, were fighting the war in Ukraine by saying, we need to protect the Slavic society from this decadent and decrepit West. And Olena's answer to those people, and I think it's a really powerful one, well, she said, look, I mean, maybe you're right. Maybe it is too soon to be asking for these rights. But it's out of our hands because Ukrainian LGBTs go online. They see about this freedom having elsewhere. They turn on their television sets. They see that same-sex marriage is happening elsewhere. They travel to other parts of the world and experience that freedom. It's a really hard thing to control in the era of globalization. And, and I guess what I'm saying is that in the era of globalization, which I know is being challenged in very interesting ways right now, but in the era of globalization, there is an argument that certain values become universal because everybody has access to them. That's not to say that they're right or wrong, but this notion that you can draw a fence around Hungary and keep one set of cultural values inside Hungary while keeping a whole other set outside is, is a fantasy. It's magical thinking. Albeit that that is magical thinking, there are still these 
political movements that are trying to use this backlash as you've described and to try and and to try and put up barriers and borders where perhaps they they can't exist anymore i was just wondering picking up on what you mentioned earlier about the intervention of david cameron in this debate and and how it was somewhat awkward or yeah heavy-handed what do you think can be done on a state level at the government level how meaningfully and usefully and appropriately can states who do support these rights how can they intervene elsewhere in support of those without causing more trouble than than if they just kept quiet there's several ways the one way is to and perhaps the most immediate way is to create safe space and actually um this is something that the obama administration when hillary clinton was the secretary of state uh, did very well and even even into the trump administration it's maintained mm. so if you are an activist an lgbt activist in trouble in kampala or in islamabad there's safe space for you in a european or north american embassy and that can be that's a matter of life and death so that's that's at the first stage of intervention of frontline intervention Beyond that it's really important firstly to listen to the activists on the ground in the country that you're trying to change or that yeah. you want to change mm. and that can be i mean that's easier said than done because you know in Russia there is one activist who is absolutely determined to have a pride demonstration and get beaten up and arrested every single year and there are other activists who think that that's really not the way to go and they're more effective ways of of building power and and making space in Russia. So different activists are going to tell you different things. Easier said than done to listen to the people on the ground. <laughs> But also really critical and and so powerful has been finding effective allies across the world so that the movement doesn't seem to be a sort of west versus the rest movement and and in fact it isn't. If you look at how extraordinarily quickly much of Latin America has advanced on these issues. If you look at the way um in Southern Africa, not just South Africa, but Mozambique and Angola and Botswana are making huge strides in these areas. If you look at the fact that despite the way that Pakistan is so repressive uh when it comes to sexual orientation, it's one of the 10 countries in the world where trans people can self determine their genders without medical certification mm-hmm. you get a, you get a much more patchy map and and the states that have been successful in promoting or protecting the rights of lgbt people have done so across the old west versus the rest boundaries mm. and in a way that's not just lip service you know there was an there was an early vote at the united nations where led by France on this on this matter where extraordinarily Gabon was fiercely behind France and anybody could see that for what it was <laughs> it was it was sort of old old colonial systems of patronage playing themselves out and and that's not what it's about it's really about listening to people from other parts of the world and states from other parts of the world that are making progress and and trying to understand how they're doing it. So Botswana has had very successful litigation against discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity and around decriminalization. Kenya has had less successful litigation. Kenya and Botswana are two very different places. 
But in many respects, they're similar. They both derive from the British legal system. They both had the initial colonial injunction against sodomy on their law books. There's a similar religion plays in a similar way in both countries. And, and if you want to learn how to shift things in Kenya, look at Botswana rather than the United States. Mm. It's something that my co-host asked me to ask, which mm. is that she has been, obviously, you follow these debates, and her, her take as a woman is that so often, as she sees it, the experiences of lesbians are not differentiated or given the same treatment maybe in the media as the experiences of, of gay men. And I just wondered whether in the course of writing this book, you paid attention to that difference or whether there was anything in particular that you learned about that difference. Yeah, you know, we, we spoke earlier about, about why, why there's this alphabet LGBT rather than yeah. just one word. And, and it really is to say that there are certain things that all the people in this fractious basket have in common, but there are very distinct issues that different letters in this alphabet soup experience. And what I sort of knew to be true intellectually and, and from my own kind of social world uh, was really made manifest to me when I traveled researching this book, right. which is, is that women who are queer, whether they call themselves lesbian or not, really are subject to a whole different set of pressures and power plays than men because of their gender. And, that, and that's obvious. That's been it. Well, maybe it's not obvious. I mean, it, it, it's an obvious tenet of feminism and lesbian feminism. But when you see it act out, when you see how difficult it is in a place like Egypt or Mexico, which are two countries where I specifically tell the stories of lesbians. Um, when you see how difficult it is for the women there to live lives without men, in a way that it's not really that difficult for men to live lives without women. There, there's certain spaces that men own that don't need women in them at all in, in, a, in a country like Egypt. Even if in a country like Egypt you are forced to marry because of your family, you can disappear, or well, Saudi Arabia is actually a, a much better example. Uh, Saudi Arabia is not a country that I, that I visited um, or wrote about, but I know from my research that there's, a, that there's a really powerful, we might call it gay, they might call it something else, homosexual culture where men hang out, leaving their women at home. Mm. And sure, their spaces, their women's only spaces, that particularly in the Arab world, lesbians can take advantage of. But those are not powerful spaces. Uh, that's one small way that I saw made manifest. But I know to be true. I'll tell you another way quickly. I watched uh, in, in India, I write about a group of people called Kotis in Tamil Nadu in the south of India, and they are third gender people. And I, I'm really interested in them because of the way they've claimed space in their village through a temple where they facilitate worship of a female deity. Mm. And they're required to dress as women for this worship to happen. And in this, in this way, they've claimed space. And I went to observe an extraordinary festival in this village. And the festival is called Mayan Kolai, which means graveyard. And in this festival, the Kotis actually become embodiments of the goddesses. And they're terrifying and they're beautiful and they're amazing. And everybody is terrified of them and desires them. And it's quite an extraordinary thing to watch these usually marginalized 
outsiders take on this role of power. But nonetheless, there was this meltdown by one of them who, who I write about, Mohana, because despite this power that she had as Kali, she was subject to some really horrible sexual harassment by some of the young men in the village. And she said, they don't even respect me even when I'm Kali. They, they, they harass me and they, they discriminate against me. They were abusive towards her. And as we were having this conversation, sitting with Mahana was Mahana's cisgender friend, a woman called Soraya. And I said to Soraya, Soraya, what would it have been like if you had been playing Kali rather than this transgender woman? If you, a cisgender woman, had been playing Kali rather than this transgender or third gender woman. Mm. And Soraya said, forget it, I would, I would have been raped. Because there, there was a lot of drunkenness and wildness in the village that night. And it just brought home to me that it's not to say that transgender women are any way safer than cisgender women. There's so many ways that they're not. But that in this particular village, in this particular time, even though this transgender Kali was discriminated against, the perception was that a cisgender woman putting herself into the public eye in that way would be at even more risk. And that was a really important lesson for me. Uh, Mark, we've got just one more question that I wanted to ask. Obviously, in this conversation, rightly, I think we've focused a lot on the challenges that these movements are facing and the backlash in many countries that we've seen in recent years. But I just wondered whether we could leave on a positive note in this remarkable journey that you've been on, you've met so many fascinating people living fascinating lives. I just wondered whether you had an example of where the positive stories can be found in this, in this conversation. There, there was a very famous campaign that, that came out of the United States early in the decade called It Gets Better. And there's a tendency to insist that in the famous phrase, the arc of history bends towards justice, even if it bends quite slowly. And that is true. But in the specific places I went to, which were often on the frontiers, so in difficult places, it wasn't always manifest that things were getting better, moving the people I was meeting and the cultures I was visiting towards some sort of ideal of same-sex marriage or a pride march. Because that might not have been even what the people in those countries want. In some cases, what they really want is just the freedom to be safe. And I started using a different measure. And the measure I used that I found immensely inspiring was the measure of agency. Mm. And it was just really powerful to me that all the people I met and all the people I write about in the pink line, even if it was at great cost, were exercising their agency and demanding space to be themselves. And in so doing, shifting the culture too, sometimes in uncomfortable and even violent ways, but shifting the culture in a way that, besides being inevitable, really does seem to me to make for more space for those who are coming next. And, and that, to me, is immensely inspiring. Absolutely. And what a great place to finish. Mark Gavissa, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Ben. So today I'm joined by Dr. Sam Gill, who is Executive Director at China Dialogue and Associate Fellow in the Energy, Environment and Resources Department at Chatham House. He's also a faculty at University of Sussex and his research focuses on climate change, media and civil society in China. 
Thanks so much for joining us, Sam. Great to be here. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Yeah, still in lockdown in London. <laughs> yeah, getting fed up, yeah. Pretty much. My, my son has just gone back to childcare, so I have a little bit of time up to myself for the first time in uh, a few months. Well, that's exciting. Congratulations. <laughs> We're here today to have a brief chat about China. Obviously, your focus is on climate, and I think we've got a lot to talk about, I'm sure, on what China is doing. But I just wondered if you could give us a brief sort of update, this is a big question, on how, how China's sitting post-COVID. I think the biggest overall impression might be that despite the initial impression that I think people had around the world that COVID would affect China above all, and initial ideas that not only would it affect China above all in terms of the infections, but also that it would have a very significant political and economic impact on China. There's now a much more of a mixed picture. Certainly, it seems to have been one of the least affected proportionally in terms of the infection. The overall numbers, I think, are probably a little bit questionable, but certainly they seem to have dealt with the worst of the virus. There's been a partial reopening across the country. The economy is starting to get back on track, certainly in terms of production in factories, construction. And we can see this actually in carbon emissions rebounding very significantly in the last month or so. We've actually saw in May much higher carbon emissions than the previous year, showing that there certainly was a sort of ramping up as people got back to work. But demand hasn't necessarily sprung back, nor has consumption. So the you know the economy still, of course, it's part of a globalized economy, is not necessarily quite back on track. The Premier Li Keqiang declined to set a growth target for the rest of the year during the government's annual meeting. It had been set for about six percent. There's now no growth target. It's likely that it will be somewhere between flat and two percent over the year. So quite a shift in government priorities towards just basic kind of employment and ensuring sort of stability and and some kind of job creation over the year. But also, you know, there's this bigger question about whether China has managed to sort of ride out the storm in terms of the emerging narrative. And I think now we're seeing kind of a war of narratives over who dealt, you know, best with with the virus, what it kind of implies in terms of systems. And indeed, there's sort of questions of responsibility and solidarity and so on that are are playing out and only really getting worse, to be honest, and and certainly not over. But from what you can see in China, there are are some partial lockdowns uh, being uh, applied in Beijing, for example, there has been some reinfection. So the challenge for China, as for a number of other countries that sort of got through the initial infection, seems to be around controlling reinfection from outside. And a lot of it's about the concern then is actually being put on outsiders. And there's been a number of kind of shutdowns of uh, specific uh, regions like, uh, like Beijing, for example, to try and control new infections. So we'll see how that plays out. You're talking about the fact that the biggest concern at the moment potentially is from people coming in from outside. How has COVID affected their sort of relations in the region? Probably quite badly for the most part. China's relations with the region probably weren't in the best shape pre-COVID. And one of the things that sort of happened with COVID is it tends to have intensified a lot of trends that were already kind of underway and heightened some of the kinds of uncertainties and contradictions that were already playing out. 
If you look at countries in Southeast Asia, for example, there was rising distrust of China in recent years uh, in polling. And we're only really seeing that intensify for various reasons. COVID doesn't necessarily sort of create those conditions. A lot of it is, I think, a, uh, a backlash to uh, particularly the Belt and Road Initiative. So China's sort of more aggressive plans to invest in infrastructure, specifically sort of infrastructure corridors that uh, incorporate a whole range of different things, including, for example, in Southeast Asia, special economic zones, large-scale investments in road, rail, power projects, and so on, haven't been entirely popular for various reasons, including the perception that these are creating sort of enclaves for Chinese investors and undermining the sovereignty of, of states. So COVID doesn't necessarily help with these kinds of situations. We're seeing distrust, if anything, kind of on the rise. Probably the most, though, with kind of some of the larger geopolitical rivals and uh, middle countries and so on, rather than immediate neighbours. Relations between China and Australia, between China and, and the European Union, and certainly between China and the US are at uh, an all-time low. And uh, COVID certainly has had a role to play in kind of intensifying those bad relationships. Do those bad relations go both ways, if that makes sense? You know, is it Trump being angry at China or is China also angry at Trump? So there's a widespread perception that China's diplomatic posture has changed quite significantly. And again, that predates COVID. Uh, and it really, ha we've seen it playing out under Xi Jinping, that there's been the abandonment of a foreign policy dictum that was attributed to Deng Xiaoping of hide your capacity and, and bide your time. And this so-called sort of hide and bide strategy seems to have been largely discarded in favour of a much more aggressive posture. And you can see this in theatres like the South China Sea, in China's gestures towards Taiwan, uh, in increasing border conflict between China and India. And a new kind of phrase in the lexicon has really only come up recently, post-COVID, this notion of the so-called wolf warrior diplomacy. And this refers to a series of Chinese action films that have this sort of notably Chinese exceptionalist kind of view of the world. And it's being attributed particularly to the habits of Chinese diplomats who have been taking to Twitter to essentially challenge Trumpism at, at its own game in terms of spreading rather untrue narratives about the outbreak of the virus or other ways trying to rile popular opinion, mainly for a a domestic audience in order to strengthen China's own sort of nationalistic uh, sense of itself. So that certainly has been on the rise, but I think it would be overstating things to say that that is necessarily representative of Chinese opinion more broadly, or indeed necessarily representative of Chinese Communist Party as a whole, which isn't entirely monolithic in terms of its approach towards the outside world. And there's certainly a lot of internal difference, I think, about how China wants to approach its, uh, its foreign policy. But yeah, certainly under COVID, there's been sort of rising distrust on both sides. I think particularly around China and the US, there's probably genuinely rising negative popular opinion towards the United States as a result of the kind of war of words around COVID. And indeed, you know, it is fairly evident that the United States government and the Trump administration has attempted to use China to deflect blame from its own uh, failures in governing the pandemic. And, you know, it's unsurprising that that would be a very unpopular uh, move in China. 
when we're talking about China's global soft power post-COVID, is climate change an opportunity for them to win back some goodwill slightly? I think climate change is one of the few opportunities that China can find to build genuine goodwill and soft power in a context reputation has been quite bruised by the pandemic and particularly the deterioration of relations between the US and China and the kind of fracturing of the world order, in part because China has genuine public goods that it can advance on the world stage, including its leading position in the technologies of the future that will be needed for a carbon-constrained world. China's the largest investor in the world in renewable energy. Of the you know, top five uh, solar PV manufacturers, four are Chinese. They dominate all of these technologies and they've changed the real economy of, of the energy transition uh, through the scale of production. Essentially, the learning curve effect, which is, you know, when you when you scale up production and, uh, and effectively allow the price to fall, has really been unleashed by China's large firms and competition between uh, Chinese companies to, to produce ever cheaper power. At the same time, of course, that needs to be balanced with China's reputation around its expansion of coal power at the same time. And you know, at the moment, it's not walking the talk. There's genuine distrust of China's efforts on climate change for understandable reasons. It's a major financier of coal power overseas. It's a major financier of high carbon infrastructure through the Belt and Road Initiative. And even at home, it's managing to reverse a lot of its gains. China is signed up to the Paris Agreement, unlike the United States, um, and you know it can by default kind of claim a certain leadership position as being the world's second largest economy, the world's largest carbon emitter by volume, and you know being signed up to long-term cuts in its carbon intensity. But these don't go far enough, and in the last six months, we've seen. Uh, approvals of new coal-fired power, about 40 gigawatts of new coal-fired power, in fact, which is equivalent to about the entire coal-fired fleet of South Africa, for example. So there's a really critical, dangerous moment sort of playing out. And if China can show some seriousness and ambition on this, it will be able to form alliances, particularly with blocs like the European Union. Uh, the EU has been keen to get cooperation back on track with China, with climate change at the top of the agenda, but it's proven very difficult. It's proven difficult partly because of the political challenge, because Europe is keener than ever to raise uh, human rights and other concerns at the at political level with China and for and for this to be taken seriously. And if China wants to offer any kinds of alternative to that narrative, it has to be it has to be very serious about what what it can offer on on climate. And as I say, we're at a very critical moment. Next year, the UK, of course, will, will host the Glasgow COP26 meeting. It's a critically important set of UN negotiations on, on climate coming five years after the Paris conference, when countries have to come back and raise their commitments on the UN climate treaty, so-called sort of ratcheting up process that can get us closer to meeting the 1.5 degree goal. And without really significant increase in ambition from China, it's kind of impossible. And with the United States having committed to pull out of the Paris Agreement, at least if uh, Trump is re-elected, then China really has a very important kind of opening. And it's one of the few openings that I think will be taken seriously. China's committed to a lot of, it's committed a lot of energy and investment to soft power. Um, in 2018, 
uh, Xi Jinping announced a, a whole reordering of the propaganda apparatus to try to create a system that could tell China's story uh, more positively on the world stage. It created a joined-up system of, of overseas uh, English-language media called Voice of China that could link together a lot of its uh, publications and other kinds of propaganda efforts. But so far, it's really not proven convincing. Uh, it mostly serves domestic audiences and, uh, and just to sort of burnish the careers of propaganda diplomats. Beijing. Much of this propaganda kind of falls on deaf ears. But environment is one place where there, I think there's a genuine interest and reception. And particularly for developing countries who are at an inflection point in their energy pathways and need critical investment in new infrastructure, China could be seen to be a very benevolent player if it were to become effectively the sort of manager and investor and operator of the low carbon infrastructures of the future. Oh, Sam, that's quite a cheery place to end, really, actually, on quite a hopeful note. Thank you so much for coming to speak to us. And, well, we'll link to your China Dialogue work and Chatham House work underneath in the show notes. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Amazing stuff. And that's it for this episode of Undercurrents. We will be back next week, as we mentioned, hopefully with some exciting Chatham House centenary related content. So if you want to find out anything else about the events that are happening next week or to look at any of the other historical content we've been working on relating to the Chatham House centenary, just Google Chatham House centenary and you will find all of it available online there. Thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed what you've heard as ever, please rate and subscribe to our feed. Please get in touch if you have any questions, any feedback, you want to send us some cake. You know, we always want to hear from you via Twitter, at Mouse, or through the Just Mouse website. But I suppose in the meantime... I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston, and you've been listening to Undercurrents.